Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I know we uh, talk a lot about community around here, and that's because we think it's a big deal. So you'll continue here us talking about it. But I just wanted you to know this morning that, that we're not the only ones who examine uh, this priority and, and look with some concern with the trends that are happening. I read just this week about sociologists who are studying some of the declining membership in volunteer organizations. That can be anything from a Lions Club to a bowling league, from political parties to neighborhood associations. And many of these people who are examining these things and and watching these trends are, are sounding some alarm. And they do so because they see that our our country was actually founded on people coming together for the common good. And they recognize that that strand of our society is slowly coming unraveled. They attribute it to a lot of different things that would make sense to us as we think about it. One of them is the fact that we live in a, in a mobile society, right? Which simply means people don't stay in a, one place for a very long period of time. <laughs> We're movers. We see that here in Lubbock. We have people who come in for medical school or for academics or jobs and then they're here for a little while and they move on and you can understand when that's the trend people are reluctant to get plugged in in any one place because they know they're going to be moving on in a short period of of time and so the relationships remain shallow one of the other things that people look at this too would make sense to us is just a lot of the technological advancements right All those cool little gadgets that we hold in our hands that fill up all that space where we end up staring at a screen more than we look into someone's eyes and have a conversation with someone. In fact, technology in many ways promotes isolation, doesn't it? Instead of having a conversation with someone, we'll just text them. It's funny, I I, I laugh at this. I watch uh, kids that are younger and, and, and how active they are in texting each other. And you tell me if this is not true, guys, okay? Text each other, and then you'll see one another in a public setting, barely uttering the words hi to one another, as you then pass and carry on your texting conversation. (laughs) I've seen it several times over. But as adults, we need to be careful not to point the finger because we're just as bad, right? We, instead of going out and visiting with people in our neighborhood, are real comfortable sitting in our living room, watching our 56-inch HD TV in surround sound, right? All these things promote isolation, right? Whether it's our mobile society, our, our technological advances, they all have the same outcome. And it's causing concern with people, not just those within the church. One professor puts it this way. She says, when we connect with one another, In volunteer associations, we learn that our self-interest is actually connected to the interests of others. That gives us a concept of the public good, a common identity, the sense of common responsibility as a nation and as citizens. A decline in that trend scholars see as potentially detrimental to democracy. In other words, when we look outside of ourselves and come along others around a common goal to to reach some common good, great things happen. In fact, that's how our country was founded, wasn't it? That's the basis of democracy. But when we lose ourselves in 
self-interests at the expense of common good, then the very fabric of our society begins to unravel. I think that their concern is merited. But my greater concern is when you see those very same trends move their way inside the church. I visited with someone recently who explained to me why they were convinced that it wasn't important for them to be here on Sunday morning because they can sit at home and watch a preacher that's probably a whole lot better than me and it'd be just fine. So many of us are involved in in so many activities. I've never seen a time where we are more busier than we are today and church is just on a list of a lot of different things that you choose from if you have time. Commitment to a local body of believers is falling out of favor just like it is with all these other volunteer organizations. And very often for the same reason. We're unwilling to commit to community both inside and outside the church because we don't like the sacrifice that it requires of our personal freedoms. Here's the bottom line. We just have to come to grips with this fact. Commitment costs you something. It does. Whether you're talking about commitment to a church body, a commitment in a marriage, any kind of commitment that is worth anything costs you something. And sadly, the trend is we are increasingly unwilling to pay that price. Here's what's interesting, and you'll see this happen time and time again, is when you begin to see these things happening in our culture, go back to Scripture and see if it actually said ahead of time that these things were going to be true. And you're going to find that it does. In fact, if you want to, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me show you where I believe Scripture validates what we can observe in our culture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. And here's the key. For men will be lovers of self. You can then go on and list a lot of results of outcomes, but the reality is they all go back to that primary principle that we become lovers of self. Our world, including what happens in our church culture, the Bible says will become so committed to self that it is no longer concerned with the common good. That's why I believe the message that John gives to the church in our passage this morning is so critically important to us. Because here's what he's going to tell us. Commitment matters. It matters. It matters a great deal to God and to His people. In God's economy, we are called as believers in Jesus Christ to be a people of commitment to God, to His mission, and to His people. And we need to be convinced that that's our calling. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, very often uh, when we come to your word, um, it cuts directly against the grain of things that are happening around us. And it's so easy for us to miss the truth of what you intend for us to hear because the momentum of our culture pulls us in a different direction. 
So I pray this morning that we can stop, that we can listen, that we can decide for ourselves in our heart of hearts what is good and right and true and from you. And then be committed, be fully committed to those truths. That's our prayer this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you would, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll pick up where we left off last in verse 24. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. I want you to just follow along as I read. John, still writing, says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, an anointing which, the, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true, and is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. One of the things that I hope that you do as you read Scripture is you take note of things that repeat themselves. And when that happens, you pay attention to it because it must be important. And you'll notice in this passage, four verses, there was a repetition, wasn't there? One word repeated five times. Did you catch it? Abide. If you have an NIV, it might say remain. It's the the same idea. It's literally to remain faithful, to endure. It's another way of describing loyal commitment. But I want you to notice that what it speaks to here is that, that this kind of commitment is a choice. It says in verse 24, As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. Let that abide. Allow it. Willfully choose. Make that decision. It's not a forced obedience or or forced commitment because that'd be slavery. It's not a commitment out of obligation because that'd be legalism. This is a willful decision to submit yourself to something. And what is that something? It says, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. It's actually repeated, that same phrase, which you heard from the beginning, two times, right? I believe it harkens us back to the way John began his letter in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, what was from the beginning, what we heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, speaking specifically of of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, What we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are called to commit ourselves to that apostolic witness of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ recorded in the words of Scripture. We are called to be committed to God's Word and give it ultimate authority in our life. 
We choose to to let the, the testimony of Scripture supersede all other messages that come our way. We are people of commitment who are committed to God's Word. John then gives an outcome as to why this is important. What, what's the result of this? Look at what he says at the other half of, of verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, here's the result. You also will abide in the Son and in the Father. See, abiding in His Word results in fellowship with God. Abiding really is another way of describing obedience, right? Because it's saying that if, if you abide in something that you've heard, you're, you're willing to trust in it. You're willing to, to follow it, to, to depend on it, to believe that it's good, that it's right, and that it's true. Willingly aligning your life according to God's will. As I walk in His ways, the Scripture says, I grow in the fellowship of His love. As we think about that, I I believe that that thought is then carried on from verse 24 into verse 25. That these two are actually connected to one another as He goes on and says, and this is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. Now we read that, and, and at first glance it kind of sounds out of place, like a parenthetical thought or something, but, but I want you to see how it's really not that one flows naturally out of one and into the other. Very often when we think about eternal life, we consider it as something yet future, right? But Scripture actually teaches us that it is a present reality in the life of every true believer. And I believe these two verses explain how that's so. You see, eternal life is often viewed from the perspective of time, right? Eternal life means that I'm going to live forever. But John wants us to understand that, that eternal life is not merely a quantity of time. But there's also a, a relational quality to that life as well. Because if you think about it, living forever is not that great if the existence is miserable. And John wants us to know that the best thing about eternal life is who you're going to be spending it with. The relationship that you have with God. And that begins right now. You also abide in the Son and in the Father. He goes on in verse 27 and says, His Spirit abides in you. And when you look at these together, I don't want you to miss the the full spectrum of the Trinity that is in deep fellowship with those who put their trust in the Lord. This is the fellowship of God's love. It is the the beauty of eternal life. And it is the reality of our lives today beginning at the moment of salvation. This loving relationship is one that's based on commitment. It is a covenant love. You remember us talking about that when we went through our marriage series at the beginning of the year. It's a love that seeks the highest good of another, right? This is important because that quality of commitment is what leads to unity. And unity is what 
brings about transformation. That's why the Bible, if you read Proverbs, it says bad company corrupts good morals, right? The reason that it says that is because you become like the one to whom you have been united. We are called to be united with Christ. And the greater that commitment, the deeper the unity. And the deeper the unity, the greater the transformation. Which for God's people who are walking in fellowship with Him means that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. We move closer to the one in whose image we have been created. This is the hope of eternal life. It's the joy of being rightly related to God in such a way that that we reflect the image of Him in all His glory. And that begins right now, this side of heaven. There's a passage in Thessalonians that I think kind of puts all this together. If you want to turn there, you can look at it with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I love this passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just listen to what it says as it relates to what we've just been talking about. It says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal life, comfort and, eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. See, God's Word leads us into an abiding fellowship of His love where we begin to experience even now that which we will come to know for all eternity, the comfort of His good hope and grace. And as you consider that truth, doesn't it now make sense why John is so adamant that they hold firm to these truths and not be distracted by these false teachers? Because you don't want to lose sight of this, do you? And so that's why he tells them in verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. That word deceive literally means to be led astray. The false teachers are bringing in these new truths that contradict with what they heard from the beginning. And I want you to notice that believers are their targets, right? They're going to the church. Why is that? I think very often it's because the deception includes just enough truth to lead those astray who have heard it before. But if they are willing to take man's word without lining it up with God's word, then they end up being deceived. So let me encourage you to be very careful when someone comes forward and says that they've received a word from the Lord. It's a common phrase in our culture, isn't it? But I want you to know that if that word from the Lord does not line up with the word of God, then it's a lie. 
It's a lie. God's Word gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And we do not need a new truth to bring about a better understanding. It's sufficient, just as it is. In fact, do you remember that reason John writes this letter to begin with? We talked about it in the very beginning. He, he tells them very openly, as we've read so far, that, that he's not giving them a new truth. He's only reminding them of things that they've already been told. But there's a reason that he is writing to them. It's in chapter 5, verse 13, when he says, I am writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I'm writing to believers. Okay? And why? In order that you may know that you have eternal life. What, what that tells me is that the teaching of the false teachers has caused them to doubt the assurance of their salvation. There's something that they've said that, that causes the, the security of their relationship with God to be called into question. We know from last week that this is due in large part to their view of who Christ is. That He's not the Messiah, the, the Son of God, God incarnate. And so if Jesus is not enough, then we're left to find something ourselves, some other way of securing salvation. Something that, that naturally depends on, on what I must do if I'm calling into question the sufficiency of what Christ has done. So I start looking for other things to help me find my way. And I want you to know that that is not an uncommon path. All throughout Scripture it gives examples of this. And one of the ways that it consistently describes it is when every man does what is right in his own eyes. That's the path. It's a path of deception. It's a slippery slope of deception. Because when you walk away from trusting in the promises of God's Word, you take the assurance of your salvation with you. Anytime you start to depend on something other than what Christ has done, you lose the assurance of your salvation because you're going to ask the question, is it enough? Is it enough? I've sat down with people who are looking at their own mortality. They're at the end of their life. And it absolutely breaks my heart when they are plagued with this question, have I done enough? Will God accept me for who I am? See, the security that our heart longs for can only be satisfied when we believe that our salvation is based wholly and completely on what God has done through the work of Jesus Christ and not on what we must do. It's like the hymn says, our hope is found in nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? And so John goes back to this solid ground, this truth, this place where we are to drive a stake in the ground. And look what he says in verse 27. He says, as for you... The anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. You've probably seen these documentaries before where they'll do deep sea exploration. They have technologies advanced past this point, but some of the ones that I remember are when they would put on this pressurized suit 
right? And they would descend well beneath the, the surface of the water with this air hose connected to a supply of oxygen somewhere on that boat, right? That always made me really nervous. Because I'm thinking if anything ever happens to that air hose, that person is literally dead in the water, right? And I think about when I'm pulling my garden hose around the yard, watering, and every once in a while it gets a kink in it and water supply stops. That's not a big deal if I'm watering my roses. It's a big deal if it's got oxygen that I'm depending on, right? Well, the word abide in verse 27 that we've talked about already brings in that thought of, of total dependence, of complete trust. It's that same thought that, that Jesus had in mind when He spoke to His disciples. It's a familiar verse that we talked about before in John 15 when He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in Me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Because what? Apart from Me, you can do nothing. Abiding implies obedience. Actually, Jesus says a few verses earlier in verse 10 of that passage, He says, if you keep My commandments, you abide in My love. It is a willful choice to trust in God's Word. Kind of going back to that picture of a deep sea diver. God's Word is like that air hose that keeps us alive. And as long as we are connected We have everything we need to be alive in Christ. But trying to survive without a steady supply of that truth is like that deep sea diver getting way beneath the surface and then disconnecting the air hose. It just doesn't make any sense, does it? Then why would we do the same? His Spirit abides in you. You abide in Him. Because apart from Him, We can do nothing. We need God's Spirit to help us understand God's truth so that we can live alive in the fullness of who we are in Christ. One of the reasons John makes a point to tell the readers that they don't need to to have another teacher is because he's speaking in opposition to these false teachers. They came in teaching these, these new truths And what John is saying is, you don't need that kind of a teacher. The teacher you need already resides in you through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. You should only listen to those who are grounded in the truth of God's Word. And that Spirit who indwells you will lead you into a knowledge of all spiritual wisdom and understanding of that truth. Just as a side note, That's one of the reasons that we are committed to the form of teaching that you see here on Sunday morning, whether it's in front of the pulpit or in our ABFs, that style of exegetical teaching where we go verse by verse from the Bible, word for word, looking at what he's communicating in the context of which that letter was written. We're convinced that the goal of the church is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And we believe the primary means by which that is accomplished is by adhering ourselves to the truths of God's Word. That's the charge that actually Paul gives to Timothy when he is urging him on in this new work of ministry that he's called him to. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Listen to what he says. 
And I want you to also pay attention to the fact that he's speaking in regards to the same idea of false teachers that surround them as well. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and understanding. He goes on to say, for the time will come, and this is that time, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Well, we believe that that's our ministry as well. John is telling his reader the same thing. Drive a stake in the ground. Anchor your life on the truth of God's Word. Walk in fellowship of the Spirit. As we consider the truths of this passage this morning, I want us to look at how John finishes up his thought at the end of verse 27. He's already told them by this point how the Holy Spirit abides in them. And they don't need someone to teach them some new truth. He calls them to trust in the Spirit, to, to reveal what is good and right and true, just as He's always done. And then He finishes by saying, just as He abides in you, look at those last four words, you abide in Him. John is once again making the point that our commitment matters. With that in mind, I want us to consider three ways that we need to reaffirm our commitment most every single day. And the reason I believe that's true is because I believe these are big bullseye targets that our enemy intends to use against you to distract you from what is true. And whenever you can be distracted from these three things, he's got you. But if you hold true to these things, you're safe in the protection of God's care. Listen to what these are. First of all, we need to be committed to the truth of God's Word. That's the first target. We need to be committed to the truth of God's Word. This is a willful decision to give God's Word priority over all the other messages that we can't escape it, inescapably come at us every single day from the world. And so let's think about what that, that looks like in our world today, right? Our world tells us that we should fix our attention on food we eat, the, the clothes we wear, the things that we need in life. I know school's about to start, right? And so one of the things that a lot of people are thinking about is, do I have the right clothes? Do I wear the right shoes? It's even down to the right pairs of socks, right? So everybody looks at me and accepts me for who I am, being included in that group. But you know what God's Word says? It says don't worry about the food you eat or the clothes you wear because God understands. And if you trust Him, He will give you exactly what you need. So focus on His kingdom and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. The world says every man for himself. 
right? It's a dog-eat-dog world, so only the strong will survive. God's Word says, seek to serve the needs of others is more important than your own, and that the power of God is actually perfected in your weakness. That the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The world says, you deserve the best. God's Word says, He deserves our best. The world says, lend only to those to whom you know you will get something in return. God's Word says, give freely to others, expecting nothing in return. Do you get the point? The messages aren't the same, are they? We need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word, or the lies of this world will lead us far away from the fellowship that we desire to have with God. We need to be committed to God's Word. But the other aspect, the other target that we need to reaffirm every single day is we need to be committed to God's people. When Jason was in town this last week, one of the conversations we had was about this aspect of love. And the common conversation that takes place when when talking about this as it relates to kind of the vertical relationship of our love for God and a horizontal relationship of our love for one another. We talked about how that's helpful in human terms to kind of delineate those, but from a biblical perspective, it's simply not true. And and the reason is, is that these are not two independent things from one another on some separate axes of, of X and Y, but instead they flow inseparably from one and into the other. As we learned this morning, God's Spirit abides in us. And we also know that one of the fruits of that Spirit is love, right? So what that should tell us is that the love we have for one another finds its source ultimately in the love of God. It flows inseparably from Him to us and then into our relationships with one another. Let me give you a good example. Let's look at this together. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll show you how this plays itself out. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians as he begins this letter. And listen to what he tells them in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, which we ourselves are comforted by God. Basically what that's saying is that we are giving comfort to others out of the surplus of supply that we have already received from God. And that's true of all the attributes that we might give to one another in a loving relationship. We give out of the surplus of what has been given to us. This is why our commitment to God's people is such an evidence of our fellowship with God. His love by nature is a self-giving love, isn't it? And So if that love resides in us, then you would expect that it mirrors that in how we relate to one another. Loving fellowship with God's people is an unavoidable outcome of our relationship and fellowship with God. And so if that doesn't exist, then we have to really go back and and really question whether there is a fellowship with God that is supplying us with that love or not. 
true believers have a commitment to God's word. They have a commitment to God's people. And then finally, they have a commitment to God's calling. And here's a perspective I want you to consider this morning. And it's something that I believe very firmly. And it's this. I believe every single person in this room who is a follower of Jesus Christ is called into full-time ministry. Do you believe that? I'm absolutely convinced it is true. You are called into full-time ministry. So if you're a dad, you minister to your kids as a father. You minister to your wife as a husband. You minister in the workplace. You minister with your friends when you're hanging out. You put that together. Is that not full-time ministry? So many times we segregate people into full-time ministry. I think that's a lie. We all share the same calling to be in full-time ministry. No one is exempt from the, the calling of the Great Commission. God's Spirit is the one who equips us for that which He has called us to do. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that I, I really love as it relates to this. And Paul is trying to communicate this same thing to these believers within this church. And he's telling them, look, God's Spirit has equipped each of you uniquely in a way that benefits the common good. That there's a purpose that every single person, to a person, serves in the role that he's called us to. He says in chapter 12, verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He goes on in verse 11 and says, but one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. And one more, verse 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desires. Do you get the point here? Each of us has been called by God to serve in some aspect of full-time ministry, uniquely equipped by God's Spirit to somehow fulfill the common good and to carry out the great calling of making disciples. It's a truth of Scripture. If you've ever been to one of our welcome classes, we do that for people who are new to Melanie Park. You've heard us talk about this analogy between a cruise ship and a battleship, right? That cruise ship is the place where we go and it's all about us. I eat when I want to eat. If I like the food, I tell you. If I don't, I tell you that too. I'm entertained when I want to be entertained. I relax when I want to relax. It's all about me. But you compare that to a battleship and it's a different story, isn't it? We're all there for a mission greater than ourselves. And there is not a person on that battleship twiddling their thumbs wondering, I wonder what role I'm supposed to play. Everybody knows their role. Everybody's committed to that role. And everybody's there for one single purpose. And that's to carry out the mission that they've been called to. That is the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what you and I have been called to. And so every day we need to be a people of commitment. Let's reaffirm with one another as we walk in fellowship together that we will be a people committed to God's Word. That we will be a people committed to God's people. That we will be a people committed to God's calling. That's what it means to follow Him. God, thank You for the privilege to look at Your Word. And boy, if there's ever a time... <laughs> where we need to hear this truth, now is that time. Because our world is full of all kinds of distractions that want to pull us away from those targets that Your Word so clearly gives to us that promote health and well-being in our relationship with You. 
our relationship with one another, and the commitment of the calling, the very purpose that we exist on this earth to go forth and make disciples. So I pray that we as a church, Melanie Park Church, would be a people of commitment. And that would be part of our identity as we follow and trust in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.